2: W A B E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. The Georgia Veg Fest is this Sunday at the Gas South Convention Center in Duluth. Later this hour, we'll hear about the celebration of vegan and vegetarian foods and why a plant based diet is so much better for the environment. Plus, W.A.B.E.'s H. Johnson talks about the multi-instrumentalist Rassan Roland Kirk in our series H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. First, Cirque du Soleil is back at Atlantic Station through December 24th. Their production Curio's cabinet of curiosities was inspired by those cabinets of wonder that were the ancestors of museums. Cirque's Curio showcases amazing acrobats, contortionists, whimsical performers, and marvelous steampunk-inspired props. Joining me now via Zoom, Artistic Director Rachel Lancaster and one of the featured performers, Sophie Gay. Welcome to City Lights. It's lovely to be
1: here, thank you. Thank you for having us.
2: (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. Cirque du Soleil was founded in 1984 in Canada For those who've never seen, or if it's possible, there's anyone who's never heard of the experience, what distinguishes Cirque du Soleil from other circuses?
1: Cirque du Soleil focuses on the collaboration of many different directors to create every show. So it captures both amazing acrobatics and physical performance that you would expect from circus just as a genre, but it also works hard to create unique experiences. It creates a whole world and environment from the moment you enter our big top, we try to take you on a journey and we t- we tell a story through that journey, through incredible both physical performers, amazing acrobatics, beautiful sound and music, and also the visual costumes that you see on stage.
2: Yes. Now, Curios premiered in 2014. How would you describe the storyline of this show? The
1: story is based on a scientist's journey, his belief that through constant research and constant challenge that, Anything is possible. And really, that's the foundation of every single piece of the show. There's many acts that are unique to the show that you cannot see anywhere else in the world, not just in other circuses. And this was very much the through line of all the creators for the show. We have one act called Acronet, which is based on almost a trapeze catching net. But it transformed to become basically almost like a giant trampoline but it doesn't quite work like a regular trampoline if you were to jump on your own you were only going to go a meter two meters at best whereas with a team of people creating tension and collaborating and working together you can get some of the biggest flights that you will see anywhere in Cirque du Soleil we're taking performers up to around 30 feet in the air and one of those performers has the longest single airtime journey in any show in Cirque.
2: Oh, my. You mentioned multiple directors, Rachel. Is there one person who conceives the narrative for the show?
1: Yes. So, our show was conceived by a director called Michel Laprise. And basically, his vision and storytelling, he then works with a group of a set designer, composers, acrobatic designers, choreographers to pull that whole idea together. It's quite a long process. Usually it takes about two years for each new show to go from storyline to what you see on stage. But it's that investment in exploration and then collaboration that really creates the unique shows that we have.
2: And as artistic director, what does your role involve?
1: So my role really takes over at the point the show is created. It's about taking the show out on the road, like once we leave Montreal. So really, my biggest goal is to keep the performers motivated and invested in the show and to keep the show growing as well, because we're really lucky we work with an environment that people are really at the top of what they're doing. If we did exactly the same thing 10 times a week, people would start to lose interest. So my job is to really invest in those performers. How do we keep crafting? How do we tell the story better? How do we evolve? And I have a team of people to help me do that. I don't do it alone, but it's that desire to keep growing. I think is really my biggest responsibility to make sure that what the audience come to see every night is beautiful.
2: Hmm. Who are some of the main characters in Curios?
1: So we have our scientist. Who, his name is called the Checher, which means to seek in French. And we have three other main characters that help him on his journey. And these three characters are called the Danians that come from a parallel universe called Curious and these three characters are called Clara. Her role is very much to understand and transmit information. So her skirt almost looks like a giant old fashioned transmitter. <laughs> then we have Microcosmos, who his costume almost looks like the front of a train. He's the sort of foundation of the group and drives things and ideas forwards. And then we have Nico, the accordion man, who has the ability to transform from being very big to very tiny. And it's the collaboration of these three characters with the Cher, Cher that make the journey happen.
2: Sophie, you are from Quebec. And I wondered, growing up in Saint-Nazaire, were you aware of Cirque?
3: Oh, definitely. It was always a, a dream for me, like from very little. I was singing and we could hear the song "Alegría" going to the radio. And I, I was just dreaming of one day being part of these uh, chapito or big top uh, traveling around the world. And I was lucky enough to join production back in 2011, which is called Corteo, and I toured with them for two years. And then after that, I joined a show in Mexico. So this one is a resident show. It's called Joya. And I did the creation for that show for about, and I stayed there for about three years. And then I joined Curious in 2017.
2: I saw that you actually began your journey with Cirque du Soleil as a hairdresser.
3: Actually, I started to be a hairdresser in a show in Quebec, which was not the Cirque du Soleil. But this is how I actually started my career. So I studied as a hairdresser, but I always wanted to be a singer. And I didn't know really how to enter because, as you mentioned, I'm from saint nazaire which is a small town with 2000 people a little bit far away from the city. and And I didn't have access to music school or it was a little bit far away from me so i was a self-taught singer from very little and uh yeah i was just you know like it's always dream that kept me going and reaching for my goal and kept me moving and so yeah when i saw that that show in quebec i was And I look at their hair and their wig. I was like, for sure, I could be a hairdresser on that show and maybe eventually end up on the stage and be a singer. And uh, so this is what I did. I gave my resume as a singer, uh, as a hairdresser, excuse me. And then I went back, I started to hairdress the show. And then one day I was in in the backstage with the producer and I'm like, oh, I wish one day I could be on that stage and sing with all of them. And he's like, oh, can you sing? I'm like, yeah. Uh, So they gave me an audition and then I became a singer on that show. And this was sort of my school, I could say, because this is where I learned how to sing with 10 other singers at the same time. So I developed my ears, harmony. Also, this is where I learned to sing with in-ears because in this show, we need to have like in-ear monitor to hear like um, the music, your pitch, your reference, and especially in a big top, the music can be super riverby or echoey. So, like these in ears keep us all together in time, the band. So, I learned to, to sing back in 2008 on that uh, show, and then I learned how to dance. And yeah, so I can say that was my school and my way to enter into Cirque du Soleil.
2: Oh, how special! <laughs> If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Cirque du Soleil performer Sophie Gay and artistic director Rachel Lancaster. Now, you are one of the lead singers in the show. Mm -hmm. You play the character Belladonna. What does Belladonna perform with in Curios?
3: So I I arrive in the show as Belladonna and we actually come out of the train and it's the first time the train ever travel like the first time ever so you arrive in that world but my character Belladonna she's kind of a famous star actress but she is also very smart and she wants to To have the same right like equal men and women and she wants to show that she can do the same as the men so she's just like uh, entering the world and she does some percussion but she also sing and then so she's traveling in the first half as belladonna and then like in the second half she comes back but she changed character and it's uh, the street singer and this refers more as actually like in In Paris, uh, how you have like uh, the singer in the street. And also she's kind of the voice that the chercher can hear through his world. And that voice just like carries uh, emotion and is moving along the acrobat doing all these acrobatics. And the street singer, she wears on her head a wig piece with a gramophone. And fun fact about that gramophone is... uh, Actually, the the director Michel Laprise was wondering, you know, in the nineteen hundred, what would have been a wireless microphone, and he decided with the, the costume designer to create a gramophone piece. So it's oh yeah, yeah, it's super cool.
2: I can imagine. Rachel, would you tell us about the score for the show and how it sets the tone for Curios?
1: Okay, the score was actually written by two different sets of composers. The majority was written by Raphael Beau, who he's a French composer. He works a lot with French film and he very much set the style and tone for the show. The show is located around the turn of the century and the Industrial Revolution, so it's very much electro swing was a genre that he caught on to, which is a theme that comes back throughout many different sections of the show, but also really what gives the show a lot of character, I think as well. So a couple of the other pieces of music were composed by a team called Bob and Bill, who have worked a lot with Cirque de Soleil, like they've worked on many different projects. And they're also very good at tapping into style directions. So they very much kept going, collaborating with Raphael in the direction that he'd already set. But it very much puts us in that idea of steampunk, the industrial revolution, the turn of the century, because an ongoing theme throughout the show is that idea of there's objects that you recognize and that are known, a little like the gramophone on Sophie's head is almost reimagined as a wireless microphone there's lots of things like bicycles that might fly during the show so i think that idea of electro swing is a nice one as well because it captures the music of the 1920s but it's reimagined in a modern way Hmm.
2: sophie what songs are among your favorites to perform in this show
3: Oh, this is a difficult question because all yeah. of them are great. <laughs> it's a very joyful music to sing, but you also have beautiful ballad, and I would say this one is one of my favorites, because it's a yeah, it's a beautiful ballad with this beautiful number of aerial straps, and you have like two strong men doing like amazing acrobatic, and oh it's such a beautiful number with beautiful music. Every day it changes to me. Like some days I just feel one song more than another. And so all the music, it's quite beautiful. It's for everyone.
2: (laughs) I know that death defying is a phrase used often in the circus world. In terms of Cirque du Soleil, it doesn't seem an exaggeration with some of the acrobats we see. Rachel, how do you ensure that the acrobats are safe when performing such complex roles?
1: The training and investment really that SUC do in performers from their first day that they're hired really is a very big part of what what makes the company quite unique. The training process is very slow it's very measured because we're lucky we're supported with quite a big team both of acrobatic coaches but also physiotherapists so somebody may have the prerequisite skill to do a triple of something already but making the transition into performing it in a costume in show lights with lots of interference in a way is what makes Cirque du Soleil unique so just for example coming back after our two years off obviously everyone was super excited to get back to work and to get going again but our training process began at the beginning of January to have our first performance in the middle of April and this was with a cast that already the majority of them were people that were already on the show when we closed in 2020. So we weren't teaching them from the beginning. So we went through an eight week training process in Montreal that just really focused on their acrobatic training. And then another five week staging process, which combines both, usually we do the morning of just acrobatic training, and then we're starting to put the whole thing together on stage in the afternoon. But this training process is ongoing. Like we have training like training both backstage and on stage. Pretty much every day the show is running. It's very much part of their warm up pre-show. Most acts will be running in the backstage area before they come out on stage to perform. And it's this level of repetition and security in what people are doing. It sometimes gives the illusion that it looks very easy on stage, but it really isn't.
2: Oh, I would never have that impression. (laughs) How does this show, how does Curios touch upon themes of unity?
1: Well, I think I'm going to jump back to our Acronet act really as a great example of that. And also the way that our four main characters really collaborate. As I said earlier the idea of a trapeze catcher's net under tension working alone, someone could maybe get a couple of meters of airtime if they were lucky so six feet. When there's six other artists, creating a bigger tension in the bed of the net it suddenly that range grows to up to around 30 feet. But that is only possible when everybody is working together. The act was almost abandoned because it was so difficult to find a way to make the apparatus work how they thought it could work. And it was through really focusing on it and working on it that suddenly they made this discovery. And it really became part of the journey and the creation of the show the fact that working together, working in a united way, it's a way to, the sum of its parts is it's always going to be bigger than the individual pieces.
2: Cirque du Soleil Artistic Director Rachel Lancaster and one of the performers in this show, Sophie Gay, Curio's Cabinet of Curiosities. Is at Atlantic Station through December twenty-fourth, and more information is on our website, wabe.org/citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about the Georgia Veg Fest coming to Duluth this Sunday. Amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for being here. According to the organization Alliance for Science, one in ten Americans say they do not consume meat. The lifestyle change has been increasingly popular in recent years, especially since the Release of pro vegan documentaries such as What the Health and Cowspiracy. This Sunday, you can learn more about vegetarianism and veganism at the Georgia Veg Fest at the Gas South Convention Center in Duluth. Joining me now via Zoom is Helene Greenberg, the founder and executive director of Triangle Veg Fest, one of the producers of this festival. Welcome to City Lights.
5: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Georgia Veg Fest was known as the Atlanta Veg Fest before it moved to Duluth. Why the move? Outside the perimeter.
5: Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Because Atlanta VegFest for the last 10 years was produced by the nonprofit called Atlanta VegFest. That their leader, Lee, and other members of their board produced the festival pretty much all over the area. Because it hasn't been in Atlanta for probably six to eight years. And I know why that is now, but I didn't know why that was until I took it over, but it's been in Marietta. It's been in Cobb County. It has been in Atlanta at a university. And last year, actually today, last year, because it came up in my Facebook memories, was the day that I could officially announce that we were taking over the festival and it was no longer going to be called Atlanta VegFest because the team that behind it decided they wanted the name to go with them. And since they were dissolving it, they didn't want that to continue. And they dissolved the nonprofit behind it. And I put out there to say, hey, what do you want this to be called? And Georgia VegFest made sense because it hasn't been in Atlanta. (laughs) And we almost put it into Atlanta, but it was really difficult. And we kind of you know, decided on Georgia Vegfest, And it could be anywhere in Georgia. We could go to any city in Georgia and do it, which might happen because there's a lot of cities in Georgia that want us, like Savannah, that want us to come there. And that's kind of like the small backstory behind it. So the name change also came with the people behind it changing as well. But I've been helping at the festival for, I think, the last six years. So when Lee asked me to, hey, do you want this? It was an immediate yes. Ah,
2: Elaine, why do you think vegan and vegetarian lifestyles are becoming increasingly popular?
5: For a lot of people, it's health. I would say that's probably the driving force for people to make a change, is that they go to the doctor and the cholesterol's high. They have a heart attack. Their parents or friends or family have a heart attack. And it leads them on a path of the internet, (laughs) Googling what can you do when you have these symptoms or these things happen to you? Cancer, the top things that happen to people that are caused by primarily diet. And they go, Oh, oh, I can do something about this. Yes, you can reverse heart disease, you can reverse type two diabetes, you can lower your cholesterol, you can lower your blood pressure, get off medication just by eating a whole food plant-based diet. So that's one avenue. Another avenue is they watch a movie, Forks Over Knives, Game Changers, A Plant Purination. There's so many out there, Vegucated. There's There's so many films that you can, you know, you sit down, a friend says, Hey, watch this with me. And you say, Wow, I didn't know that. Or what are they doing to the animals? So that's another avenue that people go. Some films turn people immediately, some films don't at all. <laughs> I have, sometimes, I don't know how that is, but if you last through the whole movie, it should plant seeds for some point in your life. And then there's the animals and the planet. When people see how their food is produced, a lot of times they can't unsee it. And for some people, they make the transition into veganism because they don't like the cruelty to animals and the, how the animals are being, I can't even say raised because factory farming isn't raising animals they don't live long enough to be raised and then the absolutely horrific deaths that they have from being in factory farming and then the planet all you have to do is look around and read the room (laughs) to realize that the planet is getting destroyed and the number one reason the planet is getting destroyed is animal ag the politicians and the news haven't quite gotten there yet but they're getting closer because they're blaming climate change on the weather and it's human caused and one way that you can help with climate change is to stop being animals.
2: I like the word vegetated. This, this, is this common usage now, vegetated, or did you coin that?
5: I didn't coin it. It is a movie by Marisa. Ah. And she produced it over 10 years ago. It is one that you can watch. It is actually about, I think about four New Yorkers who go on a journey of going vegan for a set amount of time. And they go around and they actually go to a factory farm. They see what happens to the animals and they get their medical. They do all their blood work ahead of time and then they do it afterwards. And then there's some follow-up as to what happens after they complete the program. They filmed it. That's a really cool film.
2: The other term you used, animal ag. This is factory farming with animals, I presume.
5: Yes, animal agriculture.
2: Okay. This year's festival sponsor is Farm of the Free Animal Sanctuary. Why did you want to partner with this group?
5: Well, I like to pick sanctuaries in the cities or states that we're in to bring attention to who they are. And it's not that Georgia doesn't have more than one. It's that we're close with Farm of the Free. And I want people to know who they are and how they can donate to them and give them a highlighted spot at the festival so that people will, like I said, donate and help them with the animals that they have in their care. So that's that's one of the main reasons why Farm of the Free is the presenting sponsor. Because we do that. We just did Knoxville, just did Scruffy City Vegan Fest. And Cows Come Home, who's about a half hour from Knoxville, Tennessee, was the presenting sponsor there. Here in Raleigh-Durham, Piedmont Farm Animal Refuge is the presenting sponsor. It's important that people recognize that there's more to donate to than just dogs and cats and that the cows and the pigs and the chickens, the ducks and the geese and the sheep and the goats all run into issues with having homes and getting out of horrible situations where they can go to sanctuary and these amazing people in the sanctuary world kill themselves i mean literally kill themselves with very little funds to help these animals live out their lives in sanctuary
2: if you are just tuning in this is city lights on WABE. i i'm lois Wrightsis. And my guest is Helene Greenberg, the founder and executive director of Triangle Fest. On the website of Farm of the Free, I read that they are compassionate to all life and against intersectional oppressions, including speciesism. Would you explain speciesism?
5: That's a great question. And I have a feeling that a lot of people have no idea what they're talking about. Speciesism is where humans like you and me believe that we are above all other animals on this planet and that they're all here for our use. And that is not the case. We are here to live together on this planet which is like proven every day and that we need to look at the other animals. as not as things that are here to use like toys or cars or gifts that they're living beings sentient beings that deserve life as much as we deserve life as humans speciesism is when you don't feel that way is when you look at them as objects you know one of the big things about we try to educate is when you look at a cow or a pig and people or a dog or cat for that matter and you say it it is pretty it is running away, or it is, it is making a mess, or whatever you want to say. It's not an it. The cows and the pigs and the goats and the dogs and the cats, they're he and she. And it's really important for people to understand that that's, that they are born male or female and they are sentient beings. I think that gets lost in the production of like, you know, you're eating bacon for breakfast. That bacon was a male or female pig before he or she was slaughtered. And when you put the pronouns onto animals, it does stop and make people think about, wait a second, that's true. That is a it, that it is he or she. Oh, (laughs) you know, we're always trying to put a face to what's on your plate.
2: Yes. How is this festival an example of combating speciesism?
5: It's about education. One of the things I always loved about Atlanta Veg Fest, it was really big on education and in taking it over, we're kind of keeping it as aligned as possible to what everyone is familiar with so that when they come in, they'll be like, okay, this is what we remember from 2019 because that's really the last time it was a typical festival. They did one last year outside and it was much smaller. There was no education. It was really just, you know, vendors and come and shop and like as a much smaller, smaller and and outside, which is a land of interest was never outside until COVID. So education, we have 12 educators on 12-4 on December 4th, where you can sit and learn from doctors and athletes and people in the animal rights industry. It's pretty much covered cooking demos. We've got everything kind of covered that if you just you just hung out and listened to the educators all day and then ate some food while you're sitting there. You'd be, you'd leave knowing so much more than what you came into. And of course, all the vendors, everything's vegan at the festival. It has to be because we're vegan festival. And when you walk in, it won't look any different from pretty much any other place you've gone to that has vendors and live music and food trucks, except that no animals were harmed in making of the festival because it's all vegan. So the speciesism thing is people, there, not all understand that. That is probably one of the most difficult pieces of, of veganism is helping people understand the species in part because even people in the vegan world, I don't think hundred percent get it. A lot of people in the vegan world are just about the animals and that's kind of species towards humans. And that's where the intersectionality comes in and making sure that we take care of ourselves and the animals on this planet and the planet and that we're not discriminating against anybody, no matter who or what you look like or color of your skin and therefore what animal or any type of animal that survives on this planet with us. Our festivals are warm welcome hugs. So we want you to come, we want you to learn. We want people who aren't vegan to come in there and know that there's no it's a no judgment zone so that you can, you can come and learn. So I think it's, it's got, so it's more about, it's not about speciesism so much as it is about educating and, and helping people go on a path to better health and saving the planet and to saving the animals.
2: Mm. Helene, what have been some of the more surprising foods you've tasted at a veg fest that weren't made from animal products?
5: Well, I have a great story from Wilmington this year. We've had a really high percentage of people who are not vegan come to our festivals. Georgia is our 10th festival of the year in five states. We started the year in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I heard a little story afterwards that there was this person eating, oh my God, vegan seafood. And he like had his food and he was eating and he said out loud, what kind of fish is this? which somebody who was sitting close by said that's not fish that's vegan and the person said what this is vegan this isn't fish and completely surprised because he liked it and had no idea that he wasn't eating an actual fish so (laughs) oh my god vegan seafood they'll be in georgia they're a food truck they have Lobster mac and cheese. They have fried fish. They have fried shrimp. They have like a, I just saw the plate on Sunday. They have like a bar, a buffalo shrimp plate salad thing that somebody ordered and went by my nose. And I was like, that looks really good. And of course, she's like, do you want some? And I don't eat while I'm doing these festivals. So I was like, no. (laughs) But you can eat the food vegan burgers, vegan chicken, vegan seafood. There'll be vegan pizza pretty much every type of dessert will be at the event i mean vegan dressings i mean obviously vegan soaps and shampoos and you know products and nonprofits and sanctuaries will all be in attendance
2: you mentioned some animal friendly wellness and beauty products what are some vegan or cruelty-free items people can purchase as holiday gifts.
5: Yeah, that's a great idea. I've been really pushing that, you know, do your shopping at the festival because you want to shop small. And 99% of the vendors that will be there are small businesses trying to survive just like everybody else is. So if you're going to shop, you're going to buy presents for whatever holiday you celebrate in December or birthdays, then... This is the place to do it. A lot of the vendors are are doing things that are like gifts. They'll have gift boxes where you can buy things. There's tea. Their minds are going in the direction of having something that you can buy as a gift for people. Like one of our vendors on Sunday had a gift box and, you know, of shampoo bars with the little trays that you can put into the shower to put the shampoo bar on so it lasts longer That's what'll be there. As specific vendors, georgiavegfest.com backslash vendors. We have a live vendor map. And if you click the menu, if you're on a phone, especially click the menu, go to exhibitors, and there's a list of everybody. And when you click on one of the exhibitors, you can see their information, their their logo pops up, their website, their social media, whatever information they put in, you'll learn all about them. So you'll know who they are before before you get to the event.
2: Lynn Greenberg. How does this festival ultimately showcase that veganism and vegetarianism have become more accessible to a broader audience?
5: Well, if you go to the store, any store, Target, Walmart, to any grocery stores, I know Sprouts is big in the Atlanta area, you walk in and you go to the dairy section, or you go to the cheese section, or you just go to the section with all the the plant-based derivatives or vegan options or whole food plant-based options. There's oat milk, hemp milk, soy milk, almond milk, macadamia milk, banana milk. There's like so many choices that, for people who've been vegan for like 20, 30 years, who like were doing soy milk powder to get a milk product, they're blown away. I'm blown away just in what's happened in the last, you know, 5 years for options and choices with Beyond and Impossible and every other brand coming up with like a plant-based derivative of t- any type of meat there is on the planet. So you feel optimistic. I have to be because if we don't do something, we won't have a planet to live on. So I'm old enough to go, well, it won't be really impacting me so much as it will be impacting people's children and their children's children if they even get a chance to have them, because it's no joke. This planet is going to be destroyed by climate change if we all as one don't come together and make some changes. And that's not just don't flush your toilet or drive a hybrid electric car. It has to come in the form of what's on your plate. That is probably the only way that will save the planet.
2: Helene Greenberg, founder and executive director of Triangle VegFest. The Georgia VegFest is this Sunday at the Gas South Convention Center in Duluth. More information is on our website WABE.org slash City Lights. Coming up, we'll catch up with music contributor H. Johnson and learn about blues musician Rasan Roland Kirk. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978. As host of both blues classics and jazz classics, H. educates and entertains WABE listeners. Every Friday and Saturday night, he recently added City Lights music contributor to his impressive resume and joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is H. Johnson's Jazz
0: Moment. You know, Lois, one of the things that bothers me sometimes is when an artist of great stature, in my opinion, passes away and he or she is soon forgotten. You don't hear their music anymore. You don't hear representation of their music through other sources. Of course, you hear representation of Louis Armstrong. People remember him. People remember Billie Holiday or Miles Davis. You know, there are people like those people that... uh, their memory lives on and on and on. But then again, there's people like Rahsaan Roland Kirk. Notice how I said that, Rahsaan Roland Kirk. I like to say it dramatically because when I think of him, that's the way I think of him, dramatically. He was a unique performer, came to us in 1936, left 1937. He was a saxophone player, a clarinet player, a flout player. He did everything. He was blinded accidentally at the age of two, so consequently he didn't read music. He played it strictly from the heart. At 15, he joined an R&B band, a rhythm and blues band. At 15, and at 20, he made his first recording. He was the kind of artist that you'd have to see perform in order to get the gist of where he was coming from. He would have three or four different horns in his mouth at the same time. Yeah, I said that. I'll say it again. He had three or four different horns in his mouth at the same time. And he'd be playing them all, making unique sounds and music come out of And a lot of people who uh, saw him for the first time said he was just a carnival act or something like that. They weren't really paying attention. Jazz musicians were paying attention, and other musicians, but particularly jazz musicians, they said he had something to say, and he did. My particular take on him is when he plays the blues. Now, he could play other things. He could play anything and everything. Like, I love the way he plays a tune like Cabin in the Sky. You familiar with that? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I heard Ethel Waters sing that once. But I like the way he does the blues. When he puts his finger on the blues, when he choose to play the blues. Let me write that down. When he choose to play the blues. I should say when he chose, but anyway, to make it sound right. When he played the blues, he was riveting so to speak, absolutely riveting. As a matter of fact, he has a couple of blues tunes that come to mind right now that I'm trying to figure out which one we should share with you. One is called uh, You Did It, You Did It, and yeah, you can look that up. And he also did one, I think we'll do this one. He did one called The Business Ain't Nothing But The Blues. Now, I don't know which business he's talking about. He gets down on this one. The Business Ain't Nothing But The Blues, Rasan Roland Kirk. (laughs)
2: WABE's H. Johnson and our series H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Today he featured multi-instrumentalist Rasan Roland Kirk. You can hear the full-length version of the business ain't nothing but the blues on our website, wabe.org/citylights. Catch H's Blues Classic Show tonight and every Friday beginning at 10, and do return for Jazz Classics every Saturday night beginning at 8, right here on 90.1 WABE. Callanwold Fine Arts Center's Winter House is back for the holiday season, The mansion is decked out with Christmas trees, lights, garlands, and old-fashioned board games. Guests can participate in several different workshops, such as pottery-making, gingerbread house-building, festive glass etching, and more. Photos with Santa Claus are also available Wold's executive director, Andrew Keenan, says this is one of the best times of year to visit the property. We've tried to make it very comfortable during Winter House so that people can actually enjoy all the rooms. They can sit down, relax, and really feel that they're at home. There are several performances throughout the grounds, including one more light, a theatrical dance production featuring the Ebenezer Baptist Church Gospel Choir of Atlanta. Gerilyn Warner, the director of the Callen-Wald School of Dance, is the writer and director of the Holiday Show.
4: The show is based on the antics of a 1970s TV telethon aimed at raising holiday cheer. So the show is simultaneously funny and touching as the actors set out to discover what really touches us, what is really important, and what do we really long to feel this time of year. The featuring of the Ebenezer Baptist Church Gospel Choir of Atlanta is very rare indeed, They do not make many public appearances. So, my hope is that in the post show talk, hopefully the conversation will encourage a delving into the history of the Martin Luther King Church, the individual members' paths to singing, how they came to be in that choir, how Callenwald originated the collaboration with them, and how Dr. Patrice Turner, the choir director, landed here.
2: Performances of One More Light are December 8th through 10th. Admission is free to all guests, and ticketed workshops start at just $15. More information about the winter house schedule of events is available on their website, CallenWalt.org. Finally, today I'd like to send a special message to a recent donor. Happy birthday, Christine Cooney. We appreciate you being part of our City Lights community. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., the award-winning Georgia author Wanda M. Morris joins us to discuss her new thriller, Anywhere You Run. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier story about this year's Cirque du Soleil production... You could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org City Lights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time Written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavi. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.